The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. All right, this is a real uh, privilege and, and pleasure. One, because anytime I have someone on who's actually a, a real friend, it's uh, great. Doubly so, though, because before Scott Frank was my friend, he was someone uh, who I considered among the best screenwriters really to ever do it. Uh, you know a bunch of his movies from uh, Little Man Tate, which I remember going to see, which was your first big uh, first thing. One. Uh, Minority Report, A Walk Among the Tombstones, which you also directed, Out of Sight, Get Shorty, The Wolverine. And um, it, as well as being an incredibly accomplished screenwriter and, and director, Scott is someone who, who's thought a lot about the role of the writer in the world and about like why we all do this thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and we'll talk about it with his friends in, in life, so I'm going to try to get him to talk about it here. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the fact that Right in at, at the height of your sort of movie business, you decide it's time to not take any screenwriting jobs and write a novel that's in the best tradition to me of Elmore Leonard and Donald Westlake. Called the novel's called Shaker, and it's out now, and it's a terrific read. What the fuck were you thinking though, dude? <laughs> to like, I mean, there's uh, to just uh, decide to. Div- I mean, how long did it take you to write this novel? Well, I I'd, I'd actually started it way back in say 1994. I'd written a few pages of it because I'd wanted to write books for as long as I could remember. I thought that would be my career. I'll write books and I'll write scripts and every now and again I'll direct one. But I started the book and then I would write, you know, I was, I think I started when I was working on Dead Again. Maybe I was taking notes and things on this and, and I realized very quickly that I had three kids all under the age of four. And that I couldn't afford to go write a book. I had this good day job. Um, I needed a house. I needed to pay for the three kids. And so I kind of put it aside. And every now and again, I would noodle on it. I would work on it. But mostly it just sat. And I think I had maybe 60 or 70 pages that went into a drawer for a long time. Of the three main characters, did you have did you have all three of them in 94? Did you have the element of your dad that was in it? I mean... Did you have the big building blocks all the way back then? I had, I did. I had the characters, they kind of came to me almost whole cloth. I I sort of understood them and could hear them very early on. I don't know that I had the whole plot. I knew that I had everybody's relationships. I knew that I had all their backstories, but I wasn't quite sure what the, what the whole plot was. You knew you had LA? Um, Originally it was New York. Because it's, that's fascinating. Because in the same way that Carl Hyacinth writes Miami novels or Florida, I mean, this is really an L.A. novel. And it's people talk about towns being a character, but you really got inside of what a life we don't often see in L.A. is like. So how did you... How did you get to the place of making that decision? Uh, because part of choosing to be a writer is deciding what stuff you're going to concentrate on in your story, what's important. So how did that become important? Well, what's interesting is I couldn't have done it back then. You know, I think living in L.A. for 30 years was a huge thing. And it's funny, I just read a review in L.A. magazine where they said it's clear that the writer of this book is, doesn't live in Los Angeles. And that what? You know, the bi-coastal Scott Frank doesn't really know Los Angeles. It's my pet peeve about writers who write about L.A. who don't know L.A. I burst out laughing. You raised three kids in L.A. Yeah, no, I know L.A. So it was very, very funny to read that. But 
I thought about it a lot, and there was a kind of L.A. I wanted to represent. I wanted to create L.A. as a character. So it wasn't necessarily um, reportage on what's happening. It was the way a lot of people feel in Los Angeles and the way I felt. And what was interesting is I was living in L.A., and I started to write about New York. I finally moved to New York a year or so ago and was able to write about L.A. So it was it was very strange. What made you finally decide, though, that you were really... I mean, that perspective makes sense, that you could come here and then really think about it. I mean, you know, Dutch... Leonard obviously wrote Get Shorty as a book, but that's a real L.A. movie, too. Very much. And a cousin to this in certain ways, yes. I think. People making certain decisions that then have certain kinds of ramifications. Yes. But what is it that made you finally say, like, okay... I have to clear the time to this. Because one thing that those of us know, uh, who know you at all well know, is you really complain a lot. <laughs> That's putting it so politely. <laughs> I mean, you, and it's like in poker, there's this thing, the crying call, which is when someone's like, oh, I guess I'll call, but they're loaded for bear. They have four aces. And your whole fucking career is like a crying call because you're always just like, <laughs> it's a disaster. It's not going to work. And then you get nominated for the Oscar. So like, when you were writing this book, I mean, I saw you like four or five times. And each time you were like, I'm the worst writer who ever lived. And I know you mean it when you say it. So what made you decide, okay, I'm going to do it? And then how do you, when you get in those places of self-doubt, like, how do you find a way to get through it? So it's two parts. First, why now? How did you convince yourself to do it? And then how do you make yourself keep going? Um, well, first of all, my career is is defined by happy accidents. And this book is definitely one of those. Because a few years ago, I'm sitting in, we have a house in Massachusetts, and I'm sitting there, and I don't know why. It's summer uh, a Walk Among the Tombstones has not been greenlit. We're kind of trying to get the financing. We haven't even cast Liam in it yet. And I don't know why, for the life of me, I decided to look at the book. I have no idea. How was, long had it been since you'd looked at the pages? Oh, easily 10 years. Really? Oh, yeah. It'd been a long time. And so I thought, I'm going to look at this. And I don't, know, I don't know why. Obviously, I was supposed to be working on something else. That's frequently when I go back and do something. It's when I'm supposed to be doing something else. But usually... I'm surfing the web. I'm this. For whatever reason, on this day, I decided to go back. And I read, I had 90 pages, and I read them straight through. And I thought to myself, very clearly, I thought, this is either good or it's really bad. I don't know. I honestly can't tell. But you liked it. And it was fascinating to read because I was wondering who wrote it. I was going, who? It's looking at a high school term paper. I go, who wrote this, this right. piece of work? And so years earlier, I had met Peter Gathers, who's an editor at Random House. And through our, our friend, Bill Goldman, who's been, you know, my mentor since I was 28. And so I called Peter up and I said, I'm going to send you something. And honest to God, you need to tell me. I either finish it or I throw it in the trash. I'll do whichever you tell me to do. I will do. And you meant it. And I meant it. I said, I don't know. I'll, I, I think I want to write a book. I really do. But maybe it shouldn't be this one. Maybe I should really start something fresh. And I don't know why I was even fucking around with this. I should have been doing something else. So I send it to Peter and he calls me a couple days later and he says, I don't think you should throw it out. I think you should absolutely finish it and I think you should let us publish it. In fact, I've given it to Sonny Maida at Knopf and he's read it and loved it and would love to meet you and would love to publish it. And I thought he was kidding. 
And was it New York then, or had you already? L.A. It had been L.A. I'd already swapped it for L.A. Because I had gone through way back in the 90s. I had written it for New York. Um, I started in L.A. Then I actually wrote it as a screenplay for New York, which is a abysmal screenplay. I went back, and that I could not read all the way through. And then I, at some point, went back and retransposed it as a book again, all for L.A. And that was the hundred pages that I was that I was looking at. So, long story short, I came to to New York and I met with Sonny Maida and Peter, and I got a book agent, and we set up the book at Knopf. and And as soon as I signed the contract for this book, and I was supposed to write another book, A Walk Among the Tombstones got greenlit. So now, as you know, it's a year because I'm directing that. So I have to prep it. I have to shoot it. I and have more to than a it. year, really. It more ends than up a year. being more than a year. And I don't even look at the manuscript in that year. I don't even think about it. I don't anything. I occasionally bump into Peter in New York and look sheepishly at him, but I, I haven't touched it. Then, while I'm posting A Walk Among the Tombstones, I'd written a pilot based on the Charles Williford Hope Mosley novels that got greenlit at FX. So now I have to go direct that. So... I go to Miami, and again, I still haven't looked at the manuscript since I sold it. The same hundred pages. Same hundred pages. So I go to Florida to go make this pilot. And I'm assuming that the whole next year, this is why I'm never bullish on anything. I'm believing that all next year is going to be me doing this series. Oh, you mean for once you were bullish? For once you were actually like, this is going to be great. This is happening. They're sending their publicists to the set. They're telling me they love it. It's their favorite thing. Um, Every day, everyone's happy, and I'm liking it, and it's all feeling very good, and I think this is going to happen. So I've cleared all the next year to do nothing but write scripts and work on the series. And then what happens during post is I begin to sense a change in attitude from the network. I begin to sense that they're not quite sure what it is and if they know how to sell it. And I'm not even sure I know what it is. I know it's this, it's very unusual and I don't know if there's a way to sell it. I kind of understand what they're talking about. And I said to my wife, I said, because we were thinking about moving here and Jennifer wasn't sure, you know, and we were here for our daughter's graduation from NYU. This is now two years ago. And we're sitting there in Radio City where they do the graduation. And I said to her, you know, if the pilot doesn't happen, I have a year with nothing to do. I'm just going to write my book. And you know what? I'm good either way. That'll be fun for me, too. I have, for the first time, I have nothing to do for as far as the eye can see. All you I'm hadn't do, booked writing jobs because you had two movie, you did the movie and then the pilot. And I assumed. And you thought, I'm going to make a series. I'm going to go make a series. And as you well know, your life ends once you commit to making the series. There's no time to do anything, including breathe. So I said, but if it doesn't happen, because I have all this time, I'm going to actually write the book and I'm good either way. And she said, you know what? Let's just move here. Let's just do it. Let's just have the adventure. Let's just do it no matter what. Because I had to be here in New York for Hoke because it was going to be Miami-based and the writers, we were all going to be here. It was all being planned. So you just said, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to, after all these years, we're going to actually move to New York. And so we moved to New York and I settled in writing the book. And a year ago, September is when we moved here. And I once more tucked into the novel and began working on it again. Only now, when you saw me and I was talking about it, as I really began to work on it as a book, as I'd now staked all my time on this book. Yeah, to just say, I'm just going to do the book. Suddenly, I began to panic. And I thought, why am I throwing in 
on this. And it's not that good. It's not about anything. I don't know that I know how to write. I don't know. I feel like no one is going to be studying my prose at the Iowa workshops anytime soon. So I, I thought I'm just, I just have to keep going. I just have to keep going. And at a certain point, it became liberating to know that you're not good at something and to do it because there's no pressure. So the only pressure is I began to focus in a way I couldn't focus when I'm working on scripts because I got lost in it and I was just writing and thinking about it. And it, I didn't care if it was good. I just wanted to move through it. And then every now and again, I'd give pages to Peter, who would be enormously helpful. And then I had to fix them. I would get notes and I would sort of, I would know what to do. And we could talk about it, argue about it, whatever. And I could go back into it. But I felt... It was the most liberating experience I've ever had as a writer. Probably the most fun, hands down, experience. I mean, even when you were kind of miserable, it was there. Were, you found something fun in in I would be miserable forward? only when I thought about what it was going to be when I was done. Oh, you mean when you would picture the finished product? Yes, I would be miserable because I just knew it wasn't any good. And I also, and that's what would would terrify me is that I don't know that I'm a novelist. And I would also be miserable thinking about having invested a year of my life away from the movie. And I'm saying no to everything. I'm turning things down. But, I mean, the one thing the book has, though, like right from the beginning, from the first sentence, before you even know as a reader if it's a good book and it's a really good book, but is the sense of command and control and tone is there. Did, so you didn't realize as you were going that you had locked into a voice that... In fact, in fact, very early on, I felt like, and you'll see this in the book, that I'm, I'm, there's a lot of stuff where I'm aping people I admire. <laughs> it feels like I'm clinging. There's a, kinds of rhythms and things that I just have always heard in my head anyway. And so Peter said to me, the first chapter was different. And for a long time, I'd opened the set, what is now the second chapter was the first chapter. That first chapter wasn't there. And when Peter got to there's these three, as you know, long flashbacks. You mean you didn't meet him doing his job? No, you met him. You meet him. The first chapter is the earthquake now. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't there. So you met him in the book. Immediately you met him doing his job. You met oh, him. Oh, before on, the first earthquake. Before in the, the book, first it's earthquake. first earthquake and then you flash yes. forward. Yes, yes. It's, you added that, which gives you the thing I'm talking of, the well, LA of it, uh, was, of it all. What happened was Peter said, you know, I'm reading the flashbacks, which are in kind of this weird third person. And he said, that's your own voice. And he says, that's the best part of the book. He goes, I want more of that. Why aren't, why isn't there more of that in the book? And I think you should open the book with that voice. Okay, I want to talk about this idea, this, the way in which you engage in creative collaboration, because I think it's a real signature part of your career. You talk about it all the time. You seem to enjoy giving some, uh, like you have the authority and command over what you're doing, and it seems like you really like at various stages, most writers hold on very tight. Uh, I don't want to show something until I think it's perfect. I can't. You're going to judge me if I show it to you too early. And it. And I've heard you say many times, like, you kind of relish when you find smart people, people you think understand it, giving up that authority to these people for a time. Were you always like that? Like, it's so contrary to how most writers think, but it, I've heard you say you think it's one of the keys to why you're good at what you do. If you Well, I think it's, it's because I think I'm not good at what I do, and I like to surround myself. I like to be the dumbest guy in the room and surround myself with very smart people. I feel like if I'm working with super smart people, they make me look smarter. That's been my experience from the very beginning of my career. Now, one could argue that I'm, I'm just an easy lay. 
that it's just very, you can, you know, I'm easily sold. But the truth is, sometimes I am. And sometimes I go off on these long tracks because someone suggested it to me. But I always get mad at a certain point. I always wake up in the middle of the I mean, wilderness. Remembering your movie. Remember, knowing that I've run out of water and food. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? And every draft I've ever written, every script I've ever written, there's one draft that I've always called my draft. It's after I've sort of gotten all the feedback and done everything and then gotten mad because I've taken too much in. But I like getting feedback. I'm afraid of it as much as anybody else. I worry about showing it to someone. I worry about looking foolish. I worry about people not liking it. I'm a massive people pleaser, which is not a good, healthy thing to be. But what I've learned is you go through that messy process, you fall down, you you have your pants down, you don't look good at all, but you always come out the other side of it with something better. Always. But I guess the most common question I get or one of the most common questions is how do how do I know what feedback is worth considering? How do I react to notes? How did you learn how to not take it personally or to not allow your reaction to be personal? My reaction is still personal. I mean, you do take it personally. You can't your first reaction if you're not careful is to is to you bristle, you know, yeah, because you, you work so hard and you thought of it and you went through it and they weren't there and it's easy for them to say what they're saying and all that and you process that in a nanosecond and it comes out as anger or petulance or how, the the myriad, you know, faces we put on in those in those meetings. But what you learn is, because I worked for... Lindsay Duran taught me how to write. One of the best producers. a producer who worked with Sidney Pollack, yeah. and, uh, who's a great director and developer of material, and Lindsay was president of studios and is known uh, for being incredible with story. Amazing. But how did you let that... You, you say she taught you. You had already written a couple of movies? I wrote Little Man Tate in college. So right. I wrote Little Man Tate when I was a senior in college. It was a mess. It was more like a, a hundred pages of skits. Um, and then I began to rewrite it. I probably rewrote that movie 50, 60 times. And it was almost made by Joe Dante. Before it was sold, you rewrote it yes. 50 times? Yes. Before I even got an agent, I rewrote it 50 How times. did you know you needed to? I kept giving it to people. I kept giving it to people, and I would get there. Was... Who would you give it to? You mean professionals or like any? Like how would you film people? Like because how did you decide who you were going to listen to? Uh, there was a great writer named Christine Rome, who I, I believe is still working in in the business, who was a UCLA student at the time. I gave it to her. She gave me great notes. There was a guy named Len Wexler, who somebody introduced me to, who was teaching at UCLA Extension. He gave me really smart notes. Uh, if I feel inspired by the notes. There's something that happens. And sometimes the reason I think writers get their back up is because you sit in a room full of people and they tell you what's wrong. What's great is when you're in a room full of people and not that they're throwing out lame suggestions that are just sort of these external ideas they're trying to snap on to your neck. Uh, what you, when, what's great is when you're sitting in a room and people are really inside what you're trying to write and, and they listen and, they, and they'll say to you, oh, well, if that's what you're trying to do, then you're not doing that. Maybe there's a way to do X or maybe you're too obvious. Maybe you could try something different. Those are smart notes. And so when you're with people who are smart, you, you, you may bristle at first, but when you get into having an actual conversation, you come out the other side, both exhausted and inspired. So you'll then engage with them and actually talk the stuff out and somehow can do that without appearing to them to be defensive? I mean, I'm defensive. I can be a baby. I can be, you know, whiny and bitter and snap and do all that just like anybody else. 
But I do, I am also, there is a part of me that's considering what they're talking about. And frequently I'll hang up and I'll go back to work and I'll say, there is no way I'm going to do that. And then I go, lo and behold, I go, you know what? I know what they're saying. That's the wrong, right train, but the wrong track. I know what they want, but this is, this is a way to do it. And then you find your way and and you from the beginning from interacting with Lindsay. So Lindsay comes into your life around then and was able to talk about screenplay and about storytelling in a way that you just understood? Absolutely. And on Dead Again, I believe that was my writing school for me. I took two years to write the script. It was very difficult. And Little Man Tate was interesting because it was a script that I wouldn't normally write. I've done that a few times in my career. I've written something and I don't know where it came from or I've done it for odd reasons and yet loved it in its own way, you know? Um, um, I've had that happen. Marley and Me is a movie I would never thought I would have ever written, but we love dogs in our house. But and... that's different because you came in and, and as a rewrote. I mean, I know you and, rewrote the whole thing, but you came in. But I ended up falling in love with it. And Little Man Tate was a script because I have this thing in my personality that both of these things share, which is once I start something, I can't let go of it. I would rather do a million drafts of one thing than do a million things. I stay because I've started. I'm now invested in it. This in for a penny, in for a pound. I rarely give up. And when I give up, when I realize I've just spent, and I had a run after the lookout for after 2007 to around 2012 of one script after another, where I spent a good year and a half on projects we could name that never happened. And it's the most agonizing thing for me to do that. So I really do want to fight through it and get re-inspired while I'm working on it. So, yeah, you mean if you go a year and a half and you can't crack it, letting go of it finally, having it not turn into the thing you want still maddens you? It makes me feel like I've just wasted a year and a half of my life. I don't know that I'm mad. I'm mad at myself, certainly, but I'm just, it is so sad to me to do that. It's so, it's the worst thing imaginable to have spent all this time and then not be, and I'm wondering why did I do that beyond, you know, the money is all I can say I got out of it. What is your, when you're doing this stuff, what Which, is... Which, by the way, is not true. You get a lot out of everything you write. Whether it gets made, doesn't get made, you get something out of every, the exercise of writing is always, always, always bears fruit, no matter what. And when did you first, like, start, because I, I agree with that. I mean, you're, clearly you've spent a life writing. When did it become clear to you? Because, you know, you always sort of talk about, you said right at the beginning of this, you said happy accidents. In your BAFTA speech, which if anyone wants sort of biographical detail about Scott, the BAFTA speech that you gave is fantastic, very self-deprecating, and very much just like, well, it sort of happened to me. Right. But it's not (laughs) fucking true. You have a tremendous amount of agency in what you've done. You wrote your first script in college, for fuck's sake. So when did the idea first, like, show up in your head? Like, oh, I could, I can write. This matters to me. I get something out of this, and it has value. Uh, probably when I was when I was a kid. I mean, I was I was writing stories. You know, even before high school, I was writing little things, and I was I I liked it. it I got a great feeling out of writing stories and making up stories and doing that sort of thing. And would people react to them well back then? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it was bad. I mean, sometimes you know because I would get bored too. I remember in um, yeah, it's so interesting about you. I said, did people react well? You were like, yeah, but sometimes it was bad. <laughs> well, it was. Bad. But I'm saying, but did you were you able to? Did you know? Oh. You know that thing Derek Haas says where he knew if he wanted someone to feel 
sad when they were reading his piece, he could make them feel so. Like, did you feel a sense that yeah, the but, reader would feel what you wanted them to yeah, feel? Yeah, but I was, I was more, uh, let's say, spoken word early on. In other words, so what did you do over your summer vacation? Uh, well, we didn't go anywhere. It was hard because my dad, you know, he can't stop hitting my mom. And so sometimes at home, we all have to stay in our rooms and we can't come out. And the teachers, you know, so my mom and dad would show up for these conferences. Uh, you know, my dad's an airline pilot and my mom's a homemaker. And it's a perfectly boring, normal, lovely house with me and my two sisters and they would say, is everything all right at home? And <laughs> look at my parents. And I would have forgotten that I'd even said this stuff. So I was constantly, and so one day my parents, I think I was 10, one day my parents took me aside after one particularly egregious story I might have told, and they took me into my dad's den. And I remember he had this room with this desk where he paid all the bills. It was his study. You know, I don't really know what went on in there, but it was his study. And they took two books off the shelf, and one was, you know, The Magic of Aviation or some bullshit that my dad would have being a pilot, and the other was, you know, a novel of some kind. And my, I remember my father very clearly saying, okay, this is fiction. This is nonfiction. Huh. Do you know the difference? And I said, sure, I, of course I do. They go, well, we don't, we don't think you do. And so they explained the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And they said, if you ever have this desire to create fiction, great, do it. You should do it. You're really good at it. Definitely do it. But just do, do us a favor as your parents and write at the top, fiction. Label it. <laughs> Label it as such. Just write such. fiction at the very top. And so... I have a whole bunch of schoolwork that my parents have from fifth grade, sixth grade, years after that. For a couple of years, I would label everything at the top. It would say fiction across the top. That's awesome. Yeah. So how did the idea take shape? Because the other thing, you know, in, in sort of the way you, you often characterize it, like you're just bobbing along and stuff happen, which is just nobody as successful as you. That happens that way. Even at the beginning of this, you're like, well, I kind of figured maybe I'd write a couple of things. But how did the idea really start to form? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell movie stories. Like what was the, what was it that made you think, I can do this, I want to do this? I think like many people who do what we do, it's when you recognize the effect, whatever the art is that you love has on you. And, yeah, that's deep. And right. I, I think for me, I was 14, and I remember going to see Dog Day Afternoon hmm. with my friend Ned Finkel, a real name. His dad was a colonel in the army, Colonel Finkel. And Ned Finkel and I went to go. We had my mom buy the tickets because we weren't old enough. And then we went into the theater. And I remember when he came out and starts chanting Attica, Attica, the whole theater was applauding. Some people were standing up in their seats at the Century Cinema in San Jose, California. People were going crazy for him in that movie. They were cheering. And by the end, halfway through the movie... No one was speaking. It was dead silent in the, in the theater because there's this big turn in the middle of the movie. And I've never seen an audience or myself react that way. And there were a few movies I saw in a row that did that to me. That movie, Harold and Maude, had an effect on the audience that way. Um, even, I remember uh, the Burt Reynolds movie, The Longest Yard. I remember people getting up and cheering in that movie. And I'm thinking, wow, this is an amazing thing that's happening that I had yeah, never Yeah, and the original really movie, The Broke His Neck thing, yes. made the audience yes. freak. I remember it. I think neck. he broke his fucking <laughs> neck. <laughs> yeah. I remember sitting in the, th- yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And then Apocalypse for me a couple yeah. years later. Yeah. But yes, so you felt that start to happen and, and the idea formed, I want to be a part of that. I want to do that. And I started making little movies. My friend Jim Bischoff and I started making little Super 8 movies. And I'd read, when I was 11 or 12, 
Um, I actually did this at a tribute for Bill. I, my mom and I read a Gemco, which was the version of Kmart or whatever back then in San Jose. And while we were waiting to check out, they had a paperback of the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance script, kid script rather. And I'd never seen a screenplay before. Uh-huh. And I thought it was a book. And I'd heard about the movie Butch Cassidy, but I wasn't allowed to go see it for some reason. So I went home and I read the script. And I got to Butch delivers the most aesthetically exquisite kick in the balls in the history of modern American cinema. Now, yeah. I'm an 11-year-old dude. I read that. I see that in a, in a script. And I want to do that. And it was so much fun to read. All of this was happening within, you know, months of each other. Changed my life. Just changed my life. It is amazing how much Bill Goldman, William Goldman, what the span of influence his work and he has had, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when you think about sort of screenwriters older than us, uh, I mean, you're a few years older than I am, and then younger, you know, that movie, I mean, you know, the second episode of uh, our show Billions has a huge reference to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Paul Giamatti makes this whole speech about uh, the riderless horse. Right. And um, there it is. You know, we did it wanting to give Bill... Sending it off on the... Yeah, we we wanted uh, to give, like, that was... uh, all of us owe him this incredible debt. I mean, that movie... Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there's a thing in which, which speaks to the question you asked earlier about getting notes and people sitting on you too heavily. There is a part of me, sometimes I know I need to be left alone for all my sort of talk about being so collaborative. There's a great thing in, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid that's super important for all writers to remember, which is when they go to Bolivia... And they're trying to get the job, ironically, guarding a payroll for Struther Martin. And Struther Martin when says... When he's spitting on the ground. Yeah. Struther Martin says to the Sundance kid, can you shoot? And he goes, sure, I can shoot. And Struther Martin tosses a plug of tobacco, and he says, hit that. And the Sundance kid starts to draw his guns, and he puts a hand on him, and, and Struther Martin says, just one gun's fine. And Sundance kid draws his gun, and he aims at the plug, and he misses it. And Struther Martin, I thought you could shoot. And he starts to walk away and not going to hire them. And the Sundance kid says famously, can I move? Can I move? And Struther Martin says, can you move? And this time the Sundance Uh. kid draws both his guns, drops into a crouch, spins around, does whatever it is he does and hits the plug of tobacco 10 times. So sometimes I'll say to people, tell them that and say, let me move. Just let me move. I, I need to draw both guns, move around, do my thing. It'll be a mess, but I'll hit the plug of tobacco. Just let me do it for a oh, while. Oh, that's great. Again, it's Goldman Goldman giving you that gift. It's that, yeah, and sometimes it's a balance between can I move and will you help me? And, the, and you're only as good, you know, there's that Ben Heck quote that a movie is only as good as the least talented person associated with it. Our goal is to always be that person. Yeah, Ben Hecht, I'm so glad you brought him up, too. That book he wrote about uh, Holly, Ben Hecht, one of the great screenwriters who ever lived in Europe, like the front page. He wrote an incredible book that has more truth about what it's like to be a screenwriter than sort of anything anyone's written. The book's 50 years old and hard to find. Um, Jason will put the title of it in the show notes. But it's worth finding. I've given that book out as as a gift to people. So, you know, as you're describing this interaction, you have one, one thing you're known for. Scott, is being able to help the director and the actors and the producers all see the same movie. So, so often in that, in those conversations, the screenwriter ends up getting sacrificed because the easiest thing to do is go, well, the problem is the script. So how do you think those things through? In other words, when you know, okay, this sequence works. Let's say you know a sequence works because a lot of people get tripped up, I think, dealing 
in these difficult sort of, you know, uh, uh, making these creative conversations stay stay moving forward and not being filled with, with conflict. So how do you, how much of it is like, you just like moving, reacting on the fly. How much of it is thinking in advance? How much of it is, is choosing who you're going to business? Like, how do you think that stuff through? You're standing on a set with some A-list director, A-list actor, a giant producer, and they're all looking at you. Well, at that point, it's too late. So at that point, you really hope that, you know, you cast a movie, you cast the director, you cast the writer, you cast the actors, obviously. So, but it's all casting. And if you get to the set and you've gotten to the set and you all don't see the movie by the time you've gotten to the set, you are well and truly fucked. And now you're just arguing all the time. And so you're hoping that well before you get to the set, that the first shotgun marriage that happens is you and the director. Right. So you've come on, you've been working with the producer for all this time, and you hope that it's the right producer. You and the producer see eye to eye. You're hoping that the producer has stamina, that they have read 100 scripts, that you've given them all these drafts. They've stayed through. They've gotten perspective. They've now hired the right director you've been a part of that process or not it doesn't it it depends it doesn't always work that way but you the producer the studio they brought on a director that sees the movie you've all been talking about for a year or however long it's been that you've been working on the script so now you have a meeting with the director you it's that first meeting is really important are you referencing the same movies are you talking about the same kinds of actors are you you know is it's not even that you necessarily it's somebody you want to hang out with it's somebody that you create have some sort of connection to. Well, how do you make that connection? How do you, as the screenwriter who, walking in the room, find those points of it's, commonality or lead them? It's, you, a, it's a crapshoot. And there are just some people you meet and you instantly go, I really hate this guy. So are you good at, do you then extricate yourself? If you hate the person, if you can't, or, or maybe a better way to say it is, what is it that Jodie Foster, Soderbergh, and Spielberg if I can look at three really successful collaborations you've had, what do those kind of directors bring to the process that you're able to meet and, and make the thing? Well, what you fall in love with is somebody's brain. You fall in love with somebody's ideas. You fall in love with as weird as a person can be, that doesn't matter because we're all strange. So whatever proclivities your director, produce, whatever they have, what you fall in love with is their brain and the way they work and their process. So where you try to, what you try to get to very quickly is what is the process? How does this person think? And I'm always looking for, I want to fall in love in these meetings. I want to sit with somebody and I want to be the guy who kills for them. Tony Scott used to say to me after every meeting, go kill. And and you want to be that person. I, I, I got that, you know. And you want to be their racehorse. You want to make it work for them because it's also going to work for you. If the movie's good, it's going to be great for you. If the movie's bad, if you're fighting so all the time. So you will try to adapt your vision to theirs if you believe their vision sort of like encompasses. It's going to be their vision. There's this myth that screenwriters have that their vision is going to be the movie. What's going to be the movie is they're going to respect the movie. That's the best you hope for is that you really respect it because what you've been living with in your head for a year is now gone. Now you're handing it over to somebody else who's going to also hand it over to a hundred other people. So what you really hope is that somebody is talking about it in a smart, loving way. They're going to take your child and they're going to turn it into, if you're just a writer, I mean, being, there's that great John Gregory Dunn quote, being just a screenwriter is wanting to be just a screenwriter is like wanting to be just a co-pilot. Right. So if you're the screenwriter, you're, and there's some collaborations between writers and directors that are very 
very fruitful that are that are that are um, partner um, some kind of partnership more collaborative. And I've been lucky because I've had for the most part most of my collaborations have been that way. But a lot of times what writers want to do, which instantly shuts down everybody in the room, it shuts down me as a writer when I hear them talking this way, is they want to go in and they want to enforce their script. They're there to police their fucking words. And so it's, it's so now there's no, and, and listen, uh, scripts, scripts are not just these loose suggestions. They sh- a really good script should be adhered to and hopefully with the right director and the right actors and the right technical crew, it's one and one is three by the time you're done. It's actually better than you thought it could be. It's different. I remember seeing the first cut of Out of Sight, and it was so different than what I'd had in my head in some ways, but so much better. It was so much better. It was the first time I could watch one of my own films and not think about what I'd written. Well, yeah, that's the incredible thing about getting to make a movie with Soderbergh, is he just makes your ideas better. And I, by the way, I've had that with lots of directors, you know, where that case was one, though, where it was so pronounced, where I realized, oh, this is, I see, this is what it's supposed to feel. I want to say you referenced John Gregory Dunn, uh, his book about his and his wife's, Joan Didion's book, maybe the saddest, most depressing book about the life of a screenwriter is called Monster. Yeah. If you want to talk yourself out of becoming, it's like the screenwriter's memoir that can talk you out of wanting to become a screenwriter. Yes, yes. Two great novelists who never should have no, they just gotten into, that, even... gotten into that jacuzzi. Um, um, but that's the thing. And so you're you're trying to find you all these directors. And I've been lucky, and it's probably another reason why I waited a long time to direct, because I kept working with, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld, you know, Stephen, one after sure, another. Yeah. All these directors that I was really having a ball with. And whatever quibbles I had with the movie, and sometimes they would be big ones. Uh, 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 in the end, the process for me, I had a very good feeling both about the film and about the process of doing it. And and the process is, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for, will this be a good experience? So I, I have to... I I have to ask you, I don't normally ask this sort of textural thing, but I was so struck in the novel, in your dedication to your kids in the novel, and then in the moment when one of the characters talks about taking her eye off of her kid for a second and the kid disappearing. Because your dedication talks about them putting up with your, like, sort of craziness and worry or whatever. And then, you know, obviously someone reading that the resonances to Minority Report are enormous. And it's the kind of thing that when it shows up again and again in those ways in an artist's work, that tying into when you talk in the BAFTA speech about you and your dad and the talking about him su- suddenly dying, which he didn't, but right. how present has this kind of awareness that things can shift in an instant and that you have to be hyper-vigilant and hyper-focused to try to keep things together. Well, you started this whole conversation with I'm a big whiner and I'm always worried that the worst is about to happen. I mean, I I try not to be. I really try hard not to be that person. I said you sometimes <laughs> complain and you were like, that's not the half of it. I'm the biggest whiner. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I don't enjoy when my movies come out because I'm worried about being, I'll just be pilloried, I'll be embarrassed. The book release for me is another thing where I just want it. I wrote it and I was so happy I I wish people could go read it quietly and that would be that. I don't, I'm always worried about a certain kind of failure but, but but it feels like more than that, you're worried about an event coming, an earthquake, an event okay, coming. So I have to tell you a story. Yes. Okay, so I'm involves Ned Finkel again, actually. So Ned Finkel was... The Colonel's son. The Colonel's son. Incredible wrestler. 
incredible wrestler. So I'm 15 years old. I think I was a sophomore in high school. He says, come out for the wrestling team, you know, and he says, you have to do that. So I think, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. You know, I'm not this great athlete. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I, you know, played baseball and I love baseball, but I couldn't, wasn't good enough to play baseball in high school. So I said, the rest, I like wrestling. I'm going to try, I love the workouts. I thought it was going to be a great thing. So there's no slot for me in my weight, which was, you know, 120 at the time or whatever. So I kept wrestling. You can't wrestle. You can't be too heavy in wrestle. You can be yeah, too light in wrestle. Sure. So I would always wrestle the guys who were 15, A weight class above. A weight class above. Sometimes two weight classes above. <laughs> That's a disaster. So I would all the time just, they would just flop me around like a mop. I would just get my ass kicked over and over and over again. And again... I had low expectations because I was just starting doing it, and but I would really just get wiped out. So one day I wrestle in my weight class, and it's at our high school, and I'm wrestling a guy who's 120 or whatever I was at the time, and I'm killing him. I'm 11 points ahead. And at one point, I remember this like it was an hour ago. I said, I shouldn't be winning. Ugh. I should not be winning. And in a second, I was on my back. Literally in that second, I was on my back struggling to try and not get pinned. <laughs> and he pinned me. And I remember my teammates who were cheering and so happy that for once I wasn't getting thrown around the gym, looking at me like, what the fuck just happened? And so I go through life waiting for that moment where... You're going to end up on your back. I feel like I'm 11 points ahead. I've been very lucky. All my dreams have come true to the point where I'm making up new dreams. I'm just waiting for that moment where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get pinned. Right, and I guess maybe some part of you feels like if you put it in your... Amy, my wife, who's a novelist, talks about people sometimes will come up to her and, be, and think that uh, the horrible things that happen in her novels come from her life. And she, she always says, no, no, it's everything I'm afraid I'm going to do. Exactly. All the ways I think I'm going to ruin my life. Exactly. Instead of ruining my life, I write the fear. So do you think that's part of what you do? Do you think you write your fear? You think that these fears, I mean, it may not be conscious on your part, but, but you have to know that you've referenced this kind of the war, whole world turning for the worse in an instant it shows up in your work because i have a keen eye for recognizing impending disaster i have a terrible eye i'm blind to my own current happiness and i'm working on it trying to be present and trying to be and i love my life when i look at my life and my kids and my wife and you know everything i'm I'm happy. Well, right. No, that's the thing that you can be in the middle of um, something that turns out to be great, but what you're feeling in the middle of it is lost and terrible. Yes, which may, which which drives everyone around me crazy. So, what are the moments of joy that you grab onto? Is it literally when you're writing the sentence? Is it just in the actual writing of the sentences? Yes, yes, yes. In the sitting there by myself doing the thing. The self, then the self. And is that part of why for you? Because some writers really yell about. Get to the end and then make it good. And you can't do that, you've told me. No. You, you have to go back to the beginning. Yeah, I'm haunted by all the bad crap I know that I've left behind. Right, so you feel like you have to iron as you go, basically, yes. right? Yes. It doesn't work for you the yes. other way. Yes. So is that what enables you, if you're improving something, then at least you can feel happy in that minute? You're, if it's I, progress? I know now that, uh, okay, I've been feeling bad for a week now. I've been working on this section and I don't feel good. If I do it for another day, I'm going to throw myself out a window. So I need to go back and I need to go find the downhill now. I need to go find any place in the script that's somehow downhill. Usually it's going back to the beginning and just reading through it. Sometimes it's stopping and taking notes, just writing notes about a scene you might want to write, whatever it is, anything that feels downhill. Whatever. That feels like um, the creative spark is firing. Whatever You're... it is. And right. then I slowly 
ease back into... Tony Robbins says, like, humans feel happy as long as they feel like uh, they're making some progress. Right. But if you're making some progress... Right. You can feel happy and optimistic. Yes. And if you're not, it's a painful. No, it's painful. Stasis. It's hard. And also, we're doing a job where everyone around us, everybody is afraid. They're afraid of not being able to do what they're doing now. They're be afraid of one day, tomorrow, somebody saying, okay, you're done. You can't do. We all are so, let's face it, fucking lucky to be able to earn the livings we're earning, doing what we're doing. And so... I'm grateful to that. And every day I say to myself, I know how lucky I am. And there are moments where I have huge grandiosity, you know, where I think, uh, you know, I am good. I am. I do all of that. And usually friends will quickly nuke that. But, but I, I, most of the time, I'm, I don't want to lose this thing that makes me so happy. Well, I've seen you get angry at friends of ours, uh, other writers, when you feel like they're not holding themselves to that standard. You know, when, when somebody writes in a self-indulgent manner. Right, right. When they're not sort of like... Well, A, it's just gross. <laughs> it's just gross. So, so there's that. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good when I do it, you know? And sometimes I'll say something at home to Jennifer. It's just the two of us. And she'll just look at me like, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. It's just the two of us. And because we all do that. We all have our, our moments of that, you know? And I think you need that to keep going. I mean, there is some of that sort of feeling of look at me. But I feel like there's a little bit now the sort of navel-gazing, taking screenshots of your computer in the fucking coffee shop. That's the stuff that makes right. me Right, well, because like you there feel like writing. it's such a privilege to do this that you're willing to grind and grind and grind to do it well. Yeah, yeah. I just can't imagine the writers that I've loved over the years, or even the writers that these people have loved over the years, sitting in their coffee shop, taking a selfie of themselves and the page they just wrote. You know, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that makes me, makes me nuts a little bit. You know, it just, it's this, this, it's like this whole thing about writing has become now, it's like having a, a fucking beard and a top knot. I was going to say, like, you mean, you don't like, like, the glorified barista aspect yeah, yeah, of yeah, uh, yeah. being a screenwriter, the yeah. whole idea of wanting the identity so badly. And, and movies aren't, let's face it, the weakest aspect in movies for a very long time, the weak link in everything. It's not been acting, cinematography, any of the technical things. 99% of the time, what lets you down when you walk away from a movie you were not happy with is a script. I agree with you uh, that that's the feeling one walks away with. But sometimes it's because, to me, I think sometimes it's because the director didn't understand the story. And then that's your, this gets back to your gift of, I think this has to get back to your ability to communicate without holding on too tight what the story is, meaning what the reason is for well, telling it. Well, because if the direct, right, if the director doesn't understand the why. But what usually happens is neither of them understand it. Usually you have a writer who's got this whole sort of MBA mentality. I'm going to do this movie, then I'm going to do that movie. They sort of jump from movie to movie. There's no real investment. Everything is a gig. So there's the writer. Then you have a director you bring on who is, there's a whole class of director now where again I'm just going to execute this thing and it's it's not somebody who whenever they make a film it's a piece of them you know they're giving up a little piece of them so so you have two people like that and then that's one and one is zero whenever that happens right and then then you it's think both it's their fault. it's it's nobody who actually stuck into the thing in a way 
that they could even claim um, ownership over it thematically and narrative. Nobody, not a studio, not... There was an idea there that maybe... And maybe the idea wasn't good enough to begin with. So then when you get in the middle of a big studio movie like that, because you are... and, And that's another thing fascinating about you deciding to write the novel, is look, at any time there are five people, and you've been one of them forever, for 30 years or 25 years who you can work whenever you want to. When you decide you want to, when you say, hey, I want to go to work, you'll get paid the top dollar they pay on a weekly basis to go fix a big movie that's going to go get made. When you get in the middle of those things, so this isn't a movie of yours. I just saw myself getting pinned as you said that sentence. But okay. Right. Oh, yeah, because I've said so long it's been going on. <laughs> it must be yeah. time. <laughs> uh, no, but, you know, these men, some of them you don't get credit on, and they become b- big movies and you've just helped out. I mean, how do you, if you see it this cynically, which I, I think you're right to see it this cynically. I don't think you're being unreasonably cynical. How do you then remain positive in the executing of it and in trying to turn the tide of the thing? Well, what are you feeling an obligation to? Is it the material? Is it the producer who hired you? Like, you get in the middle of a huge action movie where they're like, oh, we realize we don't have good characters. Scott, can you help us? What kind of hat are you putting on when you do that? Well, first of all, there are always exceptions to everything. So, so you want to be the exception. So your goal is to be the exception. And right. so you're not entering – if, if you – I am I – am, I'll allow you to say I'm cynical, but I, I, not to the level of bad faith. And so I still believe that you can enter into a project and you can, you can create something good as a movie. I think movies... No, I'm not saying you're cynical. I'm saying the thing you just said, though, about very often on these movies, he's taking a gig and she's taking a gig. I see what you're saying. I'm yeah. saying, how do you then put that aside when you are the person they're asking to, to come be that save person. their movie? Right, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, well, you, because for me, the only way I can work even if I come in on on some superhero movie or yeah. whatever it is, the only way I can work is from the inside out. So I think this I is go, important because this is like piece screenwriters listening. So walk through that. Well, walk us through what that means. Well, it means you have to care. And so even though I'm doing something for, let's say, politely the most mercenary of reasons, um, I'm coming in, you know, because I'm going to get paid to do something. And it's not necessarily a project that I have true passion for um i may there may be people involved that i genuinely care about and want to help but ultimately that's not going to help me write right just yes, because that's my intention is going to help me write so 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 what i have to do is i have to look at it as an exercise for me what is the writing exercise for me what is it i know how to do that this needs that needs doing here there is something no matter what the genre no matter what how big the movie is there is a fundamental writing thing that needs to needs to get done here um, what is that and sometimes i can be successful at that i think in those situations i feel far more often than not, not entirely successful. I feel like I've not really done everything that needs to be done because in those situations, oftentimes the DNA has been established. And they believe that by adding voiceover or by rewriting the girl or whatever it is, the nonsense you hear, they're going to make it better. They usually, I can make it read better. Um, But you you have a real gift at at doing like I've always found those, you know, I look back and the stuff that Dave and I have gotten made Almost always, it's just stuff that we originated, and it's our vision. And we've, you know, when we've come in and pinch hit, yes, it's we've, you know, certainly gotten enough of them made to be able to keep having a career. But I rarely feel like, gosh, I was able to find a way to put all of myself into. The we, regret I walk away with is, yeah, fuck, I, 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 
why couldn't I really put all of myself into it? Because it wasn't yours. The way I yours. can with, the, with billions. Because it's not yours. And you're not supposed to put all of yourself into it. Aren't you, though? No. You're supposed to figure out what part of yourself will help in this situation. What is it that you know how to do that will help in this? You're not... There's not going to be any kind of... The satisfaction doesn't come... Yeah, where does it come from? Yeah. The satisfaction comes from this car wasn't running quite right when... It wasn't running at all. All the pieces were all over the garage when I came on to the job. Now the car's running. I still see a couple bolts over there that I don't know where they go. <laughs> sure. But for some reason, they're driving the car. I'm not going to make any noise about the bolts and the things. And then that, that feels good to you. You got that car. It doesn't have to be a car you want to drive. I did. I did what I was asked to do. And by the way, I had a great experience. I worked with people I might not have normally worked with. I worked on a genre. The most the, the most fun I ever had on any rewrite ever was rewriting Dawn of the Dead. It was a blast for me. I, Why? That, those two weeks, it was a fucking zombie movie. I, I loved it. It was so much fun to, to, to do that. And I had a great time doing that. Deserve no credit. Did very little, but it was but it was a it was a blast to just sit there and work in a genre with Zack Snyder, who was just starting yeah, at right. the time, and I, I, he was a he was a gas. Everything was a gas. So I've done, I think I've done maybe forty or so of these kinds of jobs over the years, and right. and by and large, a great majority of them have been like that. Have been for people that were really interesting, some of whom I began working with and developing long-term relationships because I met them, you know, um, and then suddenly we're doing other things together in that situation and in genres I wouldn't normally have Was this part of, like, when you thought of the life of a screenwriter, a writer, when you were with Finkel and then, like, later as you started to do it, by the way, Ned Finkel's daughter wants to be a writer. Just oh, I think that's the, awesome. Is that good or <laughs> yeah, bad? Yeah. She like thinks Uncle Scott figured a bunch of stuff out. I don't know. <laughs> what uh, did is this kind of what you envision the life would be like? Are you kind of living the thing you'd hope to, to to live back then? Well, nothing is the way you envision it quite because you know you're walking up to someone's house to you know knock on the door and say hello and you imagine what's going to sure. be like when they open the door and they open the door and the dog jumps on you or whatever it is. So nothing is ever ever works out that way. But I'm doing what I wanted to do. I'm doing less of what I thought I would have directed sooner. I thought I would have been directing more. I haven't done as much of that. I thought um, I would have maybe been a little more productive. I'm sort of hard on myself because I don't feel like I've written as many things as I thought I would have written at this point in my life. I wish I'd, this isn't my first book. I wish this was my fifth book. Um, but I feel like, you know, you kind of, how do I feel every day? I feel good. And that's, I feel the way I want it to feel, I guess, is the way. What I is your, um, I want to borrow a question. Tim Ferriss, one of my favorite interviewers and, 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 uh, he asks creative people about the first hour of their day, and I always find it really interesting because, like, I, I know I have a way that I go about getting myself ready to be, like, do this thing. So, like, what do you do? In the, what's your morning like? When do you start writing, and how do you get yourself prepared to do the thing you do? It's different because some mornings I get up, and I mean, every morning I take the dog out, you know. So I get up early, pretty early. I'm up by 6.30. I take the dog out, and then sometimes I go to the gym or do some kind of exercise, Sometimes I'll sit and read. It's quiet, and I'll be able. To, I can read the New York Times. I can before read, writing. Before writing, you know, I'll read um, a novel that I've been reading. I'll read something, um, especially like right now. You know, I'm, I'm working on a western, so I'm reading this western that I was for research. I've been looking at this, so I'll, sometimes I'll do my work reading in the morning. Um, uh, then I, 
eat breakfast. If I if I either go to the gym, but whatever I've done in the morning, I come. And I, you I, haven't written yet. Haven't written yet, but I'm writing by about. 8.30, 9 o'clock some days, 9.30 depends on if I'm going to write at home. But so you I, get up early. I get up very early. And, I'm, I, and I write, there are two big parts of the day for me that are productive. In the morning, middle of the day, not so much for me. Um, I'll, it's phone calls, it's naps, it's lunch, it's whatever. When you're in LA, will you go see people in the middle of the day? Like, not really. So I'll, you don't go have like meetings for lunch? No, it's amazing how much time I waste because I'll get to 5 o'clock and I panic. And I realize it's now 5 o'clock, and I haven't really done a fucking thing. I don't know what I've done. You mean you really don't write till... And so I realize, I go, what have I done all day today? How how much time did I spend on Zappos? What the fuck have I Ah. been doing? (laughs) And so then, then I'm... And then all of a sudden I get this burst of energy, I hope, that makes me feel good enough to, you know, stop at 6.30, 7 o'clock. So it basically is like a couple hours in the morning where you're dick, half dicking around, yeah. half writing. Yeah. And then the real, somehow, whatever's been going on in your subconscious, yeah. it accretes finally. It like Hopefully. bubble, it, it's all accreting, accreting. Yeah. Whatever you didn't yeah. want to talk about or yeah. deal with. And then you actually produce pages between five and seven at night. Hopefully, yeah. And, but and is that when, you, when your kids were little? Same, and then you would go see the kids, or you'd see them in the middle of all that? Same, yeah. My office was at home for a long time, separate. It was in the backyard. I had a thing above the garage, and so I could check in and check out. But then... You could see them come home from school, most, and then you could go do your five to but seven Most of, But I would say most of the time for them growing up, I had an office outside the house where I had to... I drove to... I would drop them off at school, then go to my office, be there eight hours, and really not know what the fuck I did all day, and then come home. And sometimes coming home miserable because I didn't know... Yeah, the, fia- the failure of not having... The failure of not having no. written is... A, Awful. It just feels... Awful. No, and then you don't want to, no, and the kids are wondering, you don't want to talk to them, you're in a bad mood, it just, and then, you know, God, you know, God forbid, then you have a drink, and that just, you know, so, but, but the mm. book, I will say. But then would you write, sorry, then you would do the writing? You'd do the eight hours, you'd be miserable with the kids, would you then go write? Sometimes, if I were doing a rewrite, there were times where after dinner, after the kids went to bed, then I would you write would for another hour, and frequently get a ton done, so I would work in three sections, I used to drive Jennifer crazy, but I would go sure. at night, I can't can't write all night long the way people do. I by ten, eleven o'clock, I can't do it anymore. No, like our pal Craig Mazin, like he can go still as a grown man can go all night. I can't do that. I just can't I guess now it. he he can go write and then tweet about Ted Cruz badly yes. and, then, and then go write again. Absolutely, that's now absolutely. giving him the additional. I, I fuel. wish I had that energy because he is the most well-read, up-to-date uh, everything, and I don't know where he finds the time. And he's enormously productive. I was just going to say though, the book was the only time where. I found myself lost in the writing and I didn't realize how much time had gone by. And in fact, when I went back to writing, I had to do a script right after I finished the book. My brain rebelled. It was interesting. I could not focus. It took me about three months before I could really get into the script. You mean the discipline of of screenplay pages? It was just the non-fun of screenplay pages. Just writing exterior somewhere bullshit. I I didn't want to do that anymore. I realized my brain had so gotten used to this other, much more pleasurable way of Well, writing. I did notice reading the book the the time you would take to really set the scene all the time. And I could tell, and it was a joy, because uh, it, that can be a sign of, like, an, uh, bad writing could be, instead of moving the narrative forward, you know, you're really taking time to describe an apartment. But and the difference is passion. I felt, reading your book... Each one of these things, you were tr- really 
in a great way for the reader, like getting off on it. Right. Like you were having fun. Because when you say you were like, you know, Harold Bloom talks about, I mean, you said you, you felt you were aping people. But Harold Bloom talks about that the really good stuff is actually all of us are aping somebody. And yes. then the good stuff is when you do it, but somehow your original voice just sort of you misread what they did and you kind of create your own thing. So, yes, I, I do feel like it's in the tradition of Elmore. It's the most Elmore Leonard book I've ever read. But that's the biggest compliment I could give you. Nobody can write in that style. And and you don't see the world the way Elmore Leonard sees it. No. In other words, your view of people, of humanity, the stuff your eye turns to is different at the edges, right? Yes. Than the stuff that he turned to. Yes, definitely. And so that's why it doesn't feel like a ripoff of Elmore Leonard. It feels like a very someone who loves Elmore Leonard but is writing about the world that exists now in a different way. I'll have to write that down to... Does the Elmore Leonard stuff bug you? It shouldn't (laughs) bug you. I cut so much of it out. And it's funny because Peter and I had this conversation early on. And I actually think, if anything, it's almost there are places in the book that are more like someone like Carl Hyacin. Well, I brought him up before, too. Yeah. No, and Donald Westlake. To me, I mean, most people don't know who Westlake is, but there's a lot of humor in it. One of my heroes. And one of the very first crime writers I ever read when I was 12 years old. Me, too. I mean, me, too. And by the way, I mean, Goldman famously adapted The Hot Rock. The Hot Rock. So it all ties together yeah um but yeah i mean look man if you're if your thing is uh putting the scott frank on elmore leonard carl heiss and donald westlake you can't walk around ashamed about that uh i'll find a way (laughs) (laughs) you should uh go and read uh scott frank's book shaker it's uh super entertaining uh sometimes you'll feel sad reading it and sometimes you'll feel (laughs) happy reading it but uh, it's a great ride. It really is. And um, go watch his movies. And just to talk about your, st- as we end here, you're holding on to things. I, since the first time I ever met you, you talked about your great white whale being this Western you wrote that you loved and wanted to get made called Godless. Yes. And th- the fact that you couldn't get it made. And I think it hasn't been officially announced or maybe now, but what's happening with Godless? And how many years have you been... It's really important. How many years have you, from the moment you had this idea to now, how long is it? I had the idea in 2000, and then I started researching it, and I probably wrote it. I wrote it in 2002, I would guess. 2003 is when I started writing it. Um, right, maybe, we're in 2016 now. Yeah. So what I'm doing now is um, I'm expanding it into six hours. It was a three-hour script, I would say. So I'm expanding it into six hours, and it will be Netflix's first official in-house miniseries, assuming I get it done. And you're directing all six? I'm directing all six. And we'll start, uh, the goal is to start shooting sometime in July. There are so many opportunities for self-hatred. Yes, there are. Along this journey for (laughs) you. We'll we'll meet again in a year and have a conversation. (laughs) That'll be great. (laughs) Scott Frank, uh, congratulations on everything. Thanks for coming and doing this. And... um, Everyone, thanks for listening. Scott is on Twitter. The publishing company forced him to be on there. Thank you. And you can find him at, what's your name on Twitter? Scott Frank. Scott Frank. That's creative. Uh, I'm at Brian Koppelman on on Twitter. And um, reach out to us there if you want to. Uh, If you have any really interesting ideas for screenplays, things you wish someone would write for you, that's a great way to get to Scott. (laughs) He loves uh, engaging in that way. Uh, All right, Scott, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. All right, take care.
during this presidential election season, how can you shine when the conversation turns to politics? By listening to the Panoply Network's full lineup of political podcasts. There's Podcast for America with MSNBC's Alex Wagner, the campaign history show Whistle Stop with John Dickerson, The Weeds, a deep dive into policy with boxes as recline, and the granddaddy of political podcasts, Slate's Political Gab Fest. 